Welcome to Peace and Resist. Good morning, Birmingham. This is going to be a great show. We're going to focus mostly on the first part of the Freedom Ride. We're starting at about 1960, and it gets really intense pretty quickly here. So, our source material, as always, is Walking with the Wind by Michael Dorso and John Lewis. I highly recommend you give it a read. There's a lot that I'm leaving out here, but it is a really phenomenal, a really easy read. While John Lewis was beginning his journey in the civil rights era, his family heard about his getting jailed and was only ashamed of him for it. So John's home shifted from Troy, Alabama to Nashville. The sit-ins stopped. For now, the voter registration drives started to begin. While they were paused on active protest, the idea of how to integrate the lunch counters was being worked on vigorously. But not just the lunch counters, the whole city integration wide-scale, starting with movie theaters, then to markets, hotels. Flyers were made and they read, in all caps, We sat in for you, now stand up for us. It's 1960 and 110 cities are seeing protests swell, all student-led peaceful resistance in the South. Jail no bail was an idea that was pushed at the time, encapsulated in the speech that I read from Diane Nash, one of the leaders of the Central Committee. Paying bail at that time was funding a system of segregation in their eyes. It's 1960 and Election Day demonstrations are being planned so the movement can be seen and heard nationally, legislatively, louder than ever. You have two groups right now that are really working together here. John Lewis is a part of the Central Committee, or SNCC. This is the mostly student-led effort with one of the primary mentors being uh, John's primary mentor, Jim Lawson. He is one of the main leaders of the SNCC, and you may remember he spent time in India studying Gandhi. The second group, the SCLC, was the more well-known, well-established, and well-funded group at this time. This group also had a more middle-class vibe, and as John put it, they risked losing the younger SNCC if they couldn't convince Dr. Martin Luther King to join the students, the Central Committee, the SNCC, in protest. So the Central Committee was only about six months old at this point, but it's apparent how quickly they established themselves with people in the know and with the people in power here. October 19th, in the morning, the radio crackled with excitement as John and his friends heard the news. Dr. King had stepped up and put himself on the line for the cause, with their cause. In Atlanta, he was arrested during a sit-in with 80 protesters at the restaurant, located on the sixth floor of Rich's department store. Dr. King refused to pay the $500 bail, jail, no bail. When the presidential election was one week away, Nixon was asked about Dr. King's arrest, and he gave a her no comment. JFK gave no public statement, called Coretta King as a kindness, and then had his brother, Robert Kennedy, contact the judge. RFK, Robert Kennedy, pressured the judge enough so that Dr. King was released the next day. Kennedy then printed... JFK then printed two million pamphlets before the election with no comment, Nixon versus a candidate with a heart, Senator Kennedy. Feels kind of like the battle for the soul of America in some way with Biden's recent election. The students with the Central Committee got back to work in Nashville. It's November 1960 and department stores are actually desegregated. 
and the physical abuse against protesters starts to escalate. Crystals, a food chain still known today in parts of the South, is where Bernard Lafayette, John's best friend, Elmira Gray, and Marianne Morgan had buckets of water poured on them, detergent poured down their shirts, and a hose turned on them. During this sit-in, the students did not move or react with anything but passive resistance. Don, John and James Bevel rushed over when they heard, and they took the place of these three. The manager told them they were suddenly closed in the early afternoon, of all times, then locked the front door, and the manager had his employees leave out the back as he did as well. That door was locked too as they left, and a fumigator had been turned on by the manager as he left to poison John Lewis and James Bevel to death. Smoke filled the diner. James Bevel began to preach in his own whooping style, and John tried to breathe through the handkerchief he'd bought at his first sit-in. It did nothing. But at that moment, as they began to feel the lights going out, the doors burst open as firefighters brought in enough fresh air to keep John and James conscious. John notes Ella Baker's words here. The stakes were going to keep rising in this struggle. John Lewis was arrested 40 times in his life. The third time was a week after he was almost directly murdered during a protest for the first time here. December 1960, the Supreme Court enforces a federal ban on segregation at all terminals for interstate travel with Boynton versus Virginia. This is how incremental and how slow and how difficultly progress moved during the civil rights era. There was no single magic moment. It was hundreds of thousands of names that should be on plaques. 1961, Martin Luther King Jr. is noticeably not invited to JFK's inauguration, and civil rights groups are preparing larger-scale actions. Now the Central Committee's protest plans would launch on Freedom Day, February 1st, starting with a focus on movie theaters. One demonstrator, Fred Leonard, had his rib cracked from a police officer's nightstick. Gangs of teenage boys would assault the protesters verbally and throw rotten eggs or tomatoes at them. Leroy Wright, a friend of Fred Leonard, who did see his friend's rib get cracked, wound up in ER also with a bad head wound at the same time that his friend Fred Leonard was there. Some began to grow concerned about the fomenting violence, but John Lewis saw the mission, knew the stakes and the risk. He understood it, going back to when he first met Martin Luther King, when John proposed being the one to desegregate Troy State. Martin Luther King had warned him, your family farm could be burned. The protests at the theaters continued, and John's energy could be explained with this line of his, I was not concerned about my body. No one was going to kill my soul. His soul, his spirit, the spirit of history. He was arrested at a protest in February 1961 and turned 21 in jail. John was almost done with school and wrote to a longtime Birmingham minister and well-known civil rights leader, the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, about the idea of testing that Supreme Court case that outlawed segregation at interstate terminals, you know, like bus stations. Why not test it in, at Birmingham bus stations? Ride a bus there and see if the waiting areas, the food counters, see if they comply with integration laws. The Reverend Shuttlesworth said it would be far too dangerous. But then, as John put it, the spirit of history put a news article in his hand from an activist group that was seeking volunteer demonstrators to test out the same exact plan John had sent to Reverend Shuttlesworth. Great minds do think alike. He received a letter back from the group after applying. 
This group is called CORE, or Congress of Racial Equality, and a one-way bus ticket from Nashville to Washington, D.C. soon arrived to John Lewis. Here is the Freedom Riders itinerary. Three days of training in D.C. The bus leaves on May 4th with stops in Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana, arriving in New Orleans last. They plan to arrive on the anniversary of the Brown vs. Board of Education decision, May 17th. The respect and knowledge of history is ever-present with John. When he arrived at the core headquarters in D.C., the group that was organizing this Freedom Ride, he met with the other 12 Freedom Riders for this mission who had activist experiences like he did. Their names are Albert Bigelow, Jim Peck, Walter Bergman, Francis Bergman, Charlotte DeVries, Genevieve Hughes, Ed Blankenheim, Jimmy McDonald, Elton Cox, Joe Perkins, Hank Thomas, and James Farmer, who was the architect of this ride. Other Freedom Rides had taken place before, but this one was going to go further. This one was going to build on the progress of past demonstrators. The training for this ride was familiar to John, with the use of Gandhi's and Thoreau's teachings as tools, but then they began to deeply understand the Jim Crow systems of the South. State laws, local laws were all reviewed, and they had their federal constitutional rebuttals ready. A sociologist explained in detail the demographics of the people they'd encounter. This doesn't feel just like know your enemy. This is more about empathy. It's about finding the innocence in your attacker so that you remain in nonviolent passive resistance. People who faced the violence before told this group of freedom riders about exactly what type of beatings they'd face. James Farmer, this group's leader, wrote letters to JFK and other significant members of the federal government describing their plan in detail, and no one replied. At least RFK, Robert Kennedy, the attorney general at the time, knew about this. And so he knew about it from a reporter for Jet Magazine who publicly asked him about it prior to the event, but Bobby Kennedy made public showings of not knowing about it, and the letter got lost in the inbox or something. That journalist for Jet Magazine, Simeon Booker, was one of two total that was present when the Freedom Riders started their journey. The night before, John dined out with the group and had a memorable dinner at a Chinese restaurant in downtown D.C. This was the first time John had ever gone out to dinner, so it was really important and special to him. He had three books with him when the journey started, when the Freedom Rides started. The Bible, a book about Gandhi, and a book by Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton was a theologian and a monk, and he wrote 50 books in 27 years with a major focus on pacifism and justice. The first stop in the Freedom Ride was Fredericksburg, Virginia. In Fredericksburg, here, they found that integration was in effect at this terminal. The signs enforcing segregation based on race were completely removed. It seemed like progress was happening. It was, it was good to see. The next stop was Richmond, Virginia, and they were incorporating integration as well. John mentioned they had people mean-mugging them, but nothing more than a handful of nasty looks. Petersburg, Virginia went smoothly, but in south-central Virginia and Farmville, the signs that were enforcing segregation were not removed. They were actually just freshly painted, and that didn't seem like much of a coincidence. Still, they were able to use the bathrooms and the snack counters without any trouble. They went through Lynchburg, then Danville, and into North Carolina. Joe Perkins, one of the Freedom Riders, asked for a shoe shine in the city of Charlotte and was immediately arrested for trespassing. 
The next day, his case was tossed right out of court. The bus soon arrived in Rock Hill, South Carolina. This city had seen a wave of protests and responded with hard labor jail sentences, resulting in more protests and more jail sentences, resulting in jail-ins as a form of protest that brought a lot of spotlight to the residents of Rock Hill, and they did not like it. While at the bus station waiting room, which had the big signs to let you know segregation was still well in play, John Lewis was called a slur by, as he calls them, a group of young white guys, and was told that he had to use the bathroom for black people only. John calmly stated his federal rights based on the Supreme Court ruling of the Boynton case, and then he was beaten mercilessly. Others joined in the beating, and Al Bigelow, who was big and white, got in between John and the attackers. Al did not fight back, but was brought to the ground until one of the women, Genevieve Hughes, who was with the Freedom Riders, was knocked down while trying to help. A police officer then broke up the fight and suggested the attackers just go on home. One officer that arrived actually asked if they wanted to press charges. That is, if the Freedom Riders, if John Lewis wanted to press charges. But they declined in line with their nonviolence and passive resistance. This right here was an application of their Gandhian perspective to not press charges after that brutality, to not seek revenge. Blood had been drawn. John was tasting blood in his mouth. And that made it in the local papers of South Carolina. Unfortunately, at the time, unbeknownst to John Lewis, the first manned rocket flight from NASA had just taken place. John completely had tunnel vision here, and he was focused on this movement. And while he was focused, he was also contemplating and deciding what he was going to do in the future. And so at this point, he actually leaves the Freedom Ride for a short trip to Philadelphia after receiving a surprise telegram. He had been accepted to an international program he had kind of loosely applied to a little bit, and that was really because his time at American Baptist College was winding up. He really had to figure out what he was going to do next. Through this program he applied to, he had a chance to work in Africa, but instead he got only an assignment in India after the testing was completed. And really, he went to Philadelphia for this because of the chance to help and work in Africa. He thought how incredible it would be to be doing that as the son of an Alabama sharecropper, as the son of a black Alabama sharecropper. He said yes to the assignment in India tentatively, but then rushed to rejoin the Freedom Riders back in Birmingham. He again had a singular focus. His plane landed in Nashville, where he'd drive to Birmingham from there. And, as the spirit of history would have it, John arrived in Nashville on the same day the city agreed to desegregate. After all their protests, after all their sit-ins, Dr. King joined in the celebration, and at a dinner that John Lewis attended, Dr. King celebrated the first 700 miles of the Freedom Ride, and privately told the journalist from Jet Magazine, Simeon Booker, that the Freedom Ride would not make it through Alabama. The next day, reports came in that the bus John was heading to rejoin had been bombed and was burning in Anniston, Alabama. And John Lewis didn't know any more details, even if his friends and co-activists had survived. Finally, the next day, news outlets began to report. Here's what happened. The bus was leaving the station with a horde of Americans angry about integration. They intimidated the driver and the passengers the protesters, and as the driver sped away, someone managed to slash the bus tires. Soon a mob was surrounding the bus, and then a Molotov cocktail was hurled into the bus. The glass was being broken. The protesters, the Freedom Riders, were on the floor trying to cover themselves from all the falling glass. An undercover cop was on the bus. 
as this was 1961 America, and this result was expected. And he rose through the billowing black smoke with his weapon drawn, blowing his cover, but helping to save the lives of everyone on board. The mob backed off as the Freedom Rider spilled out of the emergency exit like a scene that John likens to an international war zone of some kind. But he also notes again that this was 1960s America. And I urge you to look up this photo. I warn you, it's disturbing. Do a Google search. Do a search on Freedom Riders, Anniston, Alabama, and just take a look at this and see what they were dealing with. A second bus, the Trailways bus, carried other members of the Freedom Ride and faced their own violence passing through Anniston. Jim Peck and Charles Person were severely beaten, and 60-year-old Dr. Bergman was too. When that bus made it to Birmingham, all hell broke loose. The passengers were melee. Some, like Jim Peck, were beaten to a bloody pulp, as an on-scene journalist described it. There were no police around. There were KKK members around, though. Journalists were beaten and their cameras were smashed. The beatings to Dr. Bergman, because he was older than the others at 60 years old, he suffered permanent brain damage and, and a paralyzing stroke. Jim Peck needed 53 stitches and repaired teeth. 15 minutes of violence against nonviolent activists. John called it a sanctioned wilding in the book. It was learned that this attack was coordinated. Years later, in congressional testimonies, KKK leaders discussed how they collaborated with local police. At the time of the attack, the police chief said no police were around for the incoming Freedom Riders because it was Mother's Day. He was being cheeky about it. The rest of the Freedom Ride was called off by Jim Farmer, the original organizer of this event, and John couldn't help but think they were abandoning their key tenet of no surrender to the brute force of discrimination. So he and the others decided they would continue the Freedom Ride. They called Jim Farmer to ask for his blessing, but not for his approval. Alabama Governor Patterson made clear the state's intention to ignore federal law. The citizens of the state are so enraged that I cannot guarantee protection for this bunch of rabble-rousers, he said. The rabble-rousers being the Freedom Riders fighting for desegregation, integration, equality, and equity. Ten riders would be in this new group. One white man, Jim's work, one white woman, Celine McCollum, two black women, Lucretia Collins and Catherine Burke, six black men, William Harbour, Charles Butt, Paul Brooks, William Barbie, Alan Kaysen, and John Lewis. Governor Patterson actually ignored JFK's phone calls during this time. So now it was time for federal intervention. Thank you all for joining me for episode number three. This was a really great episode. It's it's really, it's an interesting read, but it's a hard read as it gets into the more violent situations. And it helps to not look away. It's important to not look away. And, uh, you know, just I'm really grateful for not just John Lewis, not just the people named, but like you said, the hundreds of thousands of people who played a part in this. And for me as a mixed race person, as the son of an illegal immigrant, uh, you know, this is really, uh, it just this this movement's incredible and it's really inspiring and there's a lot we can learn from it to apply today and so i hope you all enjoyed this thank you so much uh this is just really the next the next week is going to be incredible and uh, we're going to have some new voices around here soon so i've been talking with a couple potential co-hosts and in march we're going to have a few things uh, a few new voices coming for you be sure to follow me at voting info hq follow the show at the Resist Pod. Thank you for listening. Keep on resisting.
If you enjoyed listening to the show, please support us at patreon.com slash votinginfohq.